and listen as I read this letter aloud. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Well, you have uh, heard of church splits, perhaps uh, some controversy from within a church leads the members to go elsewhere. Uh, maybe they leave and start their own church. Maybe they uh, all go together to one other church. Maybe they all go their separate ways. And, and sometimes the split is deeply theological. We saw that in 1 John when there was a church split over the doctrine of Christ. Sometimes the split takes place simply because people don't get along. So a long time ago in a church in New York City, there was a split. Norfolk Street Baptist excommunicated a pretty large group of members. And that means they, they voted them out of membership in the church. Now that whole group of members, formerly of Norfolk Street Baptist, they all went to one other place, Stanton Street Baptist Church. And they joined. And that infuriated Norfolk Street Baptist Church that had basically said, we're not sure these folks are Christians. And so not letting things lie, somebody from Norfolk Street Baptist Church wrote a little book or booklet and literally had it published in New York so that this church split and the actions of Stanton Street, to their mind wrongly taking in these church members, uh, would eventually become the, the talk of the town. Now, you might be wondering, well, what did these offenders do? Why did they get kicked out? Did they deny the Trinity? No. Did they preach against the resurrection? No. According to Norfolk Street, they were, and I'm quoting now, and my quote will help you understand that this happened a long time ago. 
they were guilty of fostering disaffection towards brethren and sisters of our own communion, of creating a contentious faction in our midst, of acting clandestinely with that faction in direct and willful opposition to the resolutions of schismatical meetings to subvert the authority of the church. There's actually a little bit more, but I'll stop there. Now, as again, you can tell, this happened a long time ago. And, and who talks like this today? And in all honesty, like who does this today? Right? I, I don't know who was in the right or who was in the wrong with regard to this action taken in New York so many years ago. And I know that, that this talk about putting people out of the church coupled with this conflict between churches, well, that sounds really strange and frankly irrelevant to a lot of, most of, the vast majority of, practically everybody in the church in the 21st century. But what if I told you that there was an entire book of the Bible devoted to a situation very similar to the one I described in New York City. Congregations squabble, church members disagree, and the Bible is not silent about how we ought to behave in such situations. And you probably wouldn't have believed me if I told you that there was an entire book of the Bible about that, but you just heard me read aloud the letter of 3 John. And it is a really helpful little book. And it's so funny because as I've been going through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uh, and I would put myself in the same camp, it, they're so short, but so few Christians know anything about them. And yet it would take you, like, what, 30 seconds to read. Now, and, and by the way, this is the shortest book in the Bible. Some controversy last week, whether it was 2nd or 3rd John, let the record show. 3rd John, shortest book in the Bible. Now, this sermon may not feel like it has one main point, but I do pray that you are encouraged because of this book, this letter, to pursue a kind of humility that makes friendship and missions and unity possible. Friendship and missions and unity. So let's start by asking the simple question, what happens in 3 John? Now, once again, John simply calls himself the elder, Notice he doesn't call himself an apostle, though John was an apostle. Why not? Well, he may simply prefer being referred to as a local church pastor, probably the church in Ephesus where we think he served until he died. But this letter proves that even if he did settle in this church in Ephesus, he still wielded the authority of an apostle speaking into church situations that were not directly his own. There are, by the way, no apostles today. And in fact, John was the last. So how interesting is that? Here is really the last apostle speaking into a church situation. Now here he writes to a man by the name of Gaius. Gaius was probably a faithful member of a neighboring church, a church under John's watchful eye. Now I say probably because Gaius may in fact have been a leader of that neighboring church. 
I don't happen to think he was a leader. I think if Gaius had been a leader in this church, then John would have instructed Gaius to deal with Diotrephes himself. But I don't see that kind of direct instruction to Gaius, which makes me think Gaius was a, a faithful church member. Clearly, John knew Gaius well. He must have discipled Gaius since he refers to him in verse 4 as one of his children in the faith, his children walking in truth. Now, Demetrius, who comes up at the end of the letter, must have delivered the letter to Gaius, verse 12. And Demetrius is clearly a very godly man. He's a stranger, though, to Gaius. And so John is careful to commend Demetrius in no uncertain terms as a faithful, godly brother and friend, inevitably encouraging, even instructing Gaius to, so, to show the same hospitality to Demetrius that Gaius has shown to other brothers and sisters like him. Now in verses 5 through 8, John commends Gaius for being hospitable to traveling Christians or missionaries. You may have heard of Paul and of his missionary travels to both established churches and regions where the gospel had never been preached. Well, as, as the church grew in the first century and other believers caught the vision of taking the gospel to other places, well then, missionaries must have been raised up and sent out. Uh, not apostles, but simply missionaries as the gospel spread, doing the work of sharing this gospel, strengthening churches, even establishing churches. The, 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 the limited number of, of apostles couldn't do all that work themselves. And so here in 3 John, we've got a, a testimony to the reality of other Christians who would travel from place to place, other brothers and sisters even, spreading the gospel and needing care. Now, maybe some of these Christian workers, even in the first century, focused on theological education or teaching, much like a, a traveling seminary professor. You can think of Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts when they first go to Antioch. What do they do? They, they teach a, a congregation of Christians. They provide theological education. Other missionaries focused on evangelism. These are missionaries who crossed cultures to make, the to make known the name of the one who had saved them, the, the one who brings all cultures together. They crossed cultures to make the name of the one who brings all cultures together known. Now, whoever these brothers are exactly, they are clearly servants of the gospel, and Gaius housed them. He fed them. And he gave them the resources they need to carry out the ministry God had given them. But there is a problem. There's always a problem. Look at verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So Diotrephes. Raise your hand if you named your child Diotrephes. Seeing none. Diotrephes successfully jockeyed for leadership in the church. He was probably a good speaker, probably a charismatic leader, but he did not quietly and humbly wait for the church to recognize him. 
No, he thrust himself into the limelight, and Diotrephes did not like John butting in on his church business. Now, the opposition of Diotrephes to John may seem strange since John is an apostle. Don't mess with apostles. But folks, if you read through the New Testament, you'll recognize that immature believers, certainly unbelievers, but even immature believers in local churches in the first century actually opposed apostles more than once. Just read carefully through 1st and 2nd Corinthians and notice the kind of hostility that Paul actually received from churches. And you'll recognize that in the thick of it, apostles were not always granted the kind of respect and honor that they both deserved and demanded. Now, we don't know exactly what Diotrephes objected to. Like Gaius must have, have known. Uh, John certainly knew. Uh, probably, it, and it had something to do with this letter that John wrote. We don't have that letter, verse 9. We don't have that letter. But I suppose that it had something to do with the missionaries whom Gaius supported. Maybe that was a missionary team that had been organized by the Apostle John himself. It's possible, and I, I'm guessing here admittedly, but it's possible that Diotrephes had his own missionary team. He had his own strategy to reach the nations for Christ. And his plan, the plan of Diotrephes, may not have been in full accord with. He may not have agreed with the plan of John. His plan may have differed. I don't know for sure. But what I do know is that Diotrephes forced others to take his side. He bullied people in his church into agreement. He made faithfulness to his agenda a mark of faithfulness to God. And he excommunicated or put out of membership anyone who disagreed with him and supported John's mission. So if that's right, and it might not be exactly right, but the point is there's nothing in 3 John to tell us this was a theological dispute like we saw in 1 John. This seems to be a dispute not unrelated to personalities and related to a disagreement over the agenda or the plan of the Apostle John. Now, John could not promise to come and straighten everything out. In verse 10, he writes, so if I come. And in verse, verse 14, he writes, I hope to see you soon. So John intended to come. It seems that he could not guarantee he would come. And in the meantime, this short letter stating his objection to the leadership of Diotrephes, it would have to do. So, Lord willing, Gaius, the recipient of this letter, would have found a way to share its contents with those who would be able to do something about Diotrephes while Gaius waited for John to come. Now, that's basically all we know. It's all the Holy Spirit saw fit to leave us, which tells us it's all we need to know. If the Holy Spirit wanted us to know more, he would have told us. So what can we learn from 3 John? So I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on three lessons from this short letter. And I pray that you would have the humility to apply each of these lessons 
to your own life. So here's the first lesson. Christian friendship, Christian friendship is both meaningful and long-lasting. Christian friendship is both meaningful and long-lasting. Notice how John ends the letter. Verse 15, peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Right Now notice that John doesn't end with brothers or brothers and sisters, but he ends with friends. And you might think of friends as a colder and less intimate word than brothers or sisters. But in Proverbs 18.24, we read that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know that expression, you can choose your family. You can, you can choose your friends, but not your family. Right? There's something sweet about friendship. And so John chooses to end the letter, I think, on that note, on that kind of friendship. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that's a friend that you have in the church. And Gaius is clearly a friend like that. He is clearly a friend to John. He is clearly a friend to strangers. Third John is one of the, the few New Testament letters actually written to a single individual for that single individual. Most scholars agree that when Paul wrote to Timothy, Paul intended that letter, those letters to Timothy to be for the greater church. But really Philemon... And this letter, 3 John, are the only two letters written really directly to and for single individuals. Clearly, John befriended Gaius. And more than that, John saw Gaius as his child in the faith, as someone whom John mentored and discipled and honestly probably first introduced to the gospel. This friendship is clearly long-lasting, enduring, even as Gaius and John are no longer in the same place. And the meaningfulness of this friendship shows up in how exactly John prays. Look at verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Having heard how Gaius is doing spiritually. John had no concerns about how Gaius was doing spiritually. And so knowing that Gaius is doing wonderfully spiritually, John says he prays for his physical well-being. Some argue that Gaius may have in fact suffered from some kind of illness or disability. Either way, we can learn something from how John prays. He is most concerned for Gaius' spiritual welfare, but he prays for his physical welfare too. True friends want all to go well with you. They want you to be in good health. They pray for this because they care for your material needs and they believe that God can provide for your physical material needs. It's worth noticing here John's faith. John believed that God could, the God who had encouraged him spiritually could provide for him physically. The great American author Richard Wright did not believe that God intervenes in the world. When a childhood teacher asked young Wright's class to pray for the end of a drought, little Richard Wright replied to the teacher, 
God has no influence over rain or nature, sir. Well, John believed God has influence over rain and nature, health and well-being. John believed God had the power to meet the spiritual and physical needs of Gaius. And so do we. Right at Mount Vernon, we believe God made the earth. We believe God holds presidents and CEOs and cells and molecules. And I think the atoms Frank just prayed about, God holds them all in the palm of his hand. So God can make our path straight and provide healing to our weak and frail bodies. Our physical welfare is not guaranteed. If you're taking notes, underline that and then put a star next to it and then take out your highlighter and highlight it and then cut it out and paste it on your fridge. Our physical welfare is not guaranteed. However, the fact that God does not always heal doesn't mean he can't. We should always pray, Lord, your will be done. But a meaningful friendship is one where we know and pray for each other's well-being. And if you aren't doing that, then I wonder what kind of friend you are. It's good to ask your friends how you can be praying for them. We also see the meaningfulness of friendship in the life of Gaius. Notice in verse 3 how John learned Gaius was walking in the truth. In other words, Gaius lived out the gospel, right? He, he walked the talk. This is the truth that led John to conclude in verse 2, two it goes well with your soul. How does he know it's going well with Gaius' soul? Because all the reports that are coming back from the people that Gaius has hosted, they're all telling John, that Gaius is walking with the Lord. He's walking in truth. He's walking in holiness. It goes well with his soul. And we notice that nothing brought John greater joy than knowing that those he had influenced for Christ were still walking with Christ. I guarantee that if the report had been Gaius is healthy and strong and financially well off, but his life is a spiritual train wreck that John would not have been rejoicing. No, he rejoices to know that his child in the faith, Gaius, is walking with Christ. And the older I get, the more I understand. It makes me happy to run into someone that I've known for a long time, someone maybe even that I've pastored, and to learn that they're still walking with Jesus. I don't take that for granted. Life is hard. There are too many challenges and temptations and snares of the devil for me to simply assume that everyone who said long ago that they were following Jesus are following Jesus today. The best gift that I could ever receive from my own family or my own friends or my own church members is to know that they are still honoring God in the nitty gritty details of everyday life. There's nothing sweeter, nothing more precious, nothing greater than that. Do you want to be a good friend? Here's my prescription. Walk in holiness and call your friends to let them know. Walk in holiness and call me in the morning. 
In other words, it's good and right and godly to check in with people who have influenced you, your spiritual friends, and tell them you are still serving Christ. I know it sounds kind of weird. I totally get that. But man, if that person with whom you're sharing is a believer, that believer is going to rejoice. And if he doesn't rejoice, well, praise God you called. This very week, reach out to someone who has influenced you in the past, a spiritual friend. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a colleague. Let them know how you are. Tell them it's going well with your soul. And if you if you can't do that, if you are not in a place spiritually where you could call a former mentor, discipler, pastor, and say that it is well with your soul, then it sounds like you need them now more than ever. Christian friendship is both meaningful and long-lasting. All right, second, Christian missions. Christian missions is both fragile and mutual. Fragile and mutual. In verses 5 through 8, John commends Gaius for generously supporting missionaries. Again, men and women traveling through his city. Gaius supported Christian missions. All right, those brothers referenced by John are Christian missionaries, Christian workers. Now, why do I call Christian missions fragile? Well, for one, Christian missions depends upon a consistent supply of godly qualified workers. Without such workers, the spread of the gospel will be hindered. It will be slowed down. I hesitate to say it will stop because I am promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But simply reading my Bible, it sure looks like this is the way God works. Through qualified, godly, gifted brothers and sisters. And without a consistent supply of them, the progress of the gospel to the far corners of the globe will be hindered. Now we see the quality of these workers in verse 7. Notice, they have gone out for the sake of the name. That's what we've been singing about all day. They have gone out for the sake of the name. Whose name? The name of Jesus Christ. And his name is to be praised. His name is to be exalted, magnified, glorified, spread to all the far reaches of the earth. That's our desire. As we pray for our own church, for our own country, as we pray for other churches, as we pray for other nations, every Sunday morning, what are we praying for? We want the Jesus flag to be flapping boldly in all of those places. We want his name to be exalted. Now, most of you have employers. And to some degree, your job is to help them look good. Yes, if you're a Christian, you're ultimately serving Christ. I know that. But that doesn't change the fact that in so doing, you are also serving your boss. You're working for the sake of your bosses or your company's name. But these traveling missionaries have only one allegiance, Jesus Christ. They have been vetted and commissioned, like Paul and Barnabas before them, sent out from Antioch. But it's now their job to exalt the name of Christ everywhere. Their allegiance is to him. They have only one allegiance, Jesus Christ. Christian missions is fragile because every generation has to raise up men and women 
who will give their lives specifically to the cause of Christian missions, be it through the pastorate, seminary education, or the mission field. Maybe this should be you. Try not to have my eye fall on, try not to single anybody out. Just trying to look at all of you. Maybe this should be you. Looking at the camera, maybe this should be you. Have you spoken with anyone about this? Have you spoken with friends about this or with your pastors? Talk to others. Get their input. Ask them if they see the potential for you to do this. Christian missions is hard, but good work. God doesn't need any of you. Right? You can underline that one too. God doesn't need any of you. But if God has gifted you for this kind of service, you need to know, you need to know that a life like this, devoted to Christian missions, as I've talked about it here from 3 John, is a life well spent. Christian missions is fragile in another way. It's expensive. It costs money to be freed up to study, to travel, to evangelize, yes, even to pastor. I'm so thankful for the money I receive from you because it gives me time during the week to prepare these messages. I could say true good things loudly without much preparation. I think you are better served by affording me the time to dig deeply into God's word and to try to make connections that I wouldn't be able to make and applications that would be more difficult for me to draw without an extended time of serious study. It's expensive. Last I checked, Home Depot, Google, Amazon, and Kroger were not interested in paying people to spread the name of Jesus Christ. It takes money to eat and to live, to be freed up to minister. In the early church, some religious leaders actually charged their audience for the message they preached. You could sort of subscribe, right, to Gamaliel. You could subscribe to some so-called Christian minister. You could subscribe to, you could become a Patreon supporter, right, and free them up to do the work of teaching you whatever it is they wanted to teach. But not so with Christians in the early church. Now, missionaries gave the gospel freely. And it's why John says in verse 7 that these missionaries accepted nothing from the Gentiles. Gentiles there is simply a word intended to communicate non-Christians. They accepted nothing. They, they, they did not set up an account, a PayPal, a PayPal account. No. They gave the gospel freely because they wanted these unbelievers to understand the freeness of salvation. They refused to take money from their non-Christian listeners. So where does the support of missions come from? Well, that brings us to another important aspect of Christian missions. It is mutual. The mission of the church was never to be supported by just one person. It takes more than the missionary himself, it takes more than Gaius. It requires the support of many. Look at verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Therefore, we ought. That is an ought, as in have to, as in must. We ought to support 
workers like, not any worker, the faithful ones, the, the, the sound ones, the ones going out, not for the sake of their name, but for the name of Christ, the, the ones who are willing not to have as much because they're not going to receive payment from unbelievers. We support by praying. We support by encouraging. And, and we support by giving, by giving financially. Christians around the world are known for giving a large percentage of their income to gospel-centered ministry. We are known for that. Now, I recognize that uh, some of you uh, here are, are not Christians. Uh, you're not, you might not even profess to be a Christian. And so by this point in the sermon, you're probably wondering what you got yourself into. I do want to address you for a moment, though. I cannot convince you that the gospel is true. In other words, I have no foolproof way of convincing you that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that he came to earth and lived a perfect life, never rebelling, never sinning, never doing anything wrong, that when he died on a cross, because he is both God and man, he was able to die in the place of everyone who would ever turn away from their sin and trust in him. I can't convince you, I can't prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead, nor can I prove to you right now that one day you will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for your life. I can't convince you of that. I can, however, prove that we're convinced this is true. You see, I can't convince you, non-Christian, that everything I'm saying about Jesus is true. But I, I think I can convince you that the people around you believe it's true. How? By showing you their checkbooks. By showing you their bank accounts. By showing you how these Christians give abundantly and generously and sacrificially. All so that the gospel can be preached both in pulpits like the one I'm preaching from now and in unreached nations around the world. Not only that, I can introduce you to Christians who gave up lucrative careers and secure jobs and comfortable homes in order to devote themselves to making the name of Christ known among the nations. And they didn't do this because they were bored. They did it because they believe Jesus is the Messiah, truly God and truly man, our Savior. So again, speaking to my dear friends here who are unbelievers, I may not be able to convince you Jesus rose from the dead, but I surely can convince you that we're convinced. At the very least, maybe that fact alone will make you a little skeptical of your skepticism of Christianity. I know it's not foolproof evidence, but maybe at least it will cast a shadow of doubt in your mind that Jesus is God. And to my brothers and sisters in the faith who are not in full-time ministry, that's most of us, I want to encourage you, maybe you are clocking in at a bank, at an accounting firm, Maybe you are building robots or waiting tables or changing diapers. 
What does the Bible have to say about your role in the Great Commission, about your role in getting the gospel to the far corners of the globe? Look again at verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Fellow workers. When you give, when you are joyfully open-handed with what you have for the sake of the name of Christ, you are like Gaius, a fellow worker for the truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next week, Lord willing, as you see in the church card, which you have all dutifully taken and placed in your Bible, Lord willing, next week, as that church card makes clear, Josh Manley will be with us. Josh planted a church a number of years ago in Ras Al Khaima in the Middle East, just north of where Jesse and Delane recently moved. Mount Vernon, you support him. You support that church. You are a fellow worker in the truth with him. And so when he's here next week, I want you to encourage him. I want you to come up to Josh and say, Josh, we are thankful you're there. We hear about your work often. We're praying for you. We love you. I want you to encourage him. But you know what else? I want you to be encouraged because he's there in no small part because of you. And that is the biblical pattern and the biblical mandate. Be encouraged. God is using you to bring the gospel to Ras Al Khaimah. Christian missions is both fragile and mutual. Now that brings us to the third lesson from 3 John, at least the third lesson that, that we have time to talk about this morning. Third, church unity is both threatened and beautiful. Church unity is both threatened and beautiful. We know from the Bible that, and from history that the church is always under attack from without and from within. Church unity is constantly threatened. In the Bible, we see that just after Pentecost, there was a couple who decided to lie to the church and to lie to God. Ananias and Sapphira, God took care of them, but their sin disrupted for a season the unity of the church. I've said a lot already this morning about Paul and Barnabas, faithful missionaries. Paul, of course, being an apostle. Two heroes of the faith who split ways, who disagreed. They could not agree about who should join them on a shared mission. Can you imagine? You're out there seeking to make the name of Christ known among the nations. There are hardly two figures in the church more influential than you. And you have to split up because you cannot agree on whether or not Mark should go along with you. Welcome to life in the fall. Even apostles feel its horrific thunder. Even today, the church faces real problems. Let me share some that some of you will be aware of. What should our posture toward the government be in days like these? When so many recommendations are given out. In some states, so many executive orders are given out that citizens, Christian citizens, have a hard time agreeing with. 
How should we think about race in American history, in American society, and in the church today? Which is the greatest threat to the unity of the church? Is it lingering racism? Or is it the proliferation of critical race theory? Christians disagree. And until heaven, people with sound theology will not see eye to eye. And this will cause division. And we have no reason to think again that Diotrephes had bad theology. He's never accused of that. We know Christians with sound theology can disagree over how to answer complicated questions and how to interpret difficult passages of Scripture. And for that reason, church unity is threatened. And until Jesus returns, it will always be threatened. But before we are done today, I want to affirm church unity is something to aspire to because it is beautiful. How can we seek for and find beauty even in the midst of real disagreements? Verses 9 and 10 help. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Diotrephes is the main actor in these verses. His sins are numerous. He does not control his tongue. He is a gossip who talks wicked nonsense against John. Diotrephes lacks hospitality. John says he refuses to welcome the brothers. These brothers were missionaries, brothers and sisters who had devoted their lives to seeing the gospel go forth. And unlike Gaius, Diotrephes will not support them. He refuses to show them hospitality. By the way, slight aside, I wonder if in 1 Timothy 3, when we find that one of the qualifications of an elder is that he be hospitable, I wonder if part of that qualification is that an elder be uniquely committed to providing resources for the spread of the gospel among the nations. In any event, Diotrephes not only lacks hospitality, he is a bully. You see, it's not merely that Diotrephes refuses to welcome the faithful workers. He tries to shut down those who disagree. He leads the church to put out, to excommunicate anyone who would even help these missionaries. Diotrephes, as, as Peter warns us against in 1 Peter 5, Diotrephes lords his authority over the congregation. He is a bulldozer in the church of the living God, and he is foolish. Look at how he rejects the instruction of the Apostle John. Keyword, Apostle. Verse 9 ends with that statement, the Diotrephes does not acknowledge our authority. Now, the by our, our is him. Our is the Apostle. John is not anybody. He is an Apostle. And for Diotrephes to reject John's authority is effectively for Diotrephes to reject God. It's as if you and I were to find a verse in the Bible that we didn't really like and say, I don't really like that verse. It rubs me the wrong way. I don't think God could have said that. I'm not going to follow it. That's bad. Foolish. Because the Bible is not Aesop's fables. It's not 
Benjamin Franklin's book of virtues. It's the infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. And it's a foolish thing to reject it. John was the authoritative agent of God. And it was foolish of Diotrephes to reject him. But that sums up Diotrephes. Now, with a man like that in charge, it's no wonder the church was in turmoil. But here's what's so amazing about John's rebuke. He gets right to the heart of the matter. Everything I've mentioned so far about Diotrephes, you know, his tongue, his lack of hospitality, his bullying, his foolishness, as bad as all that might be, those are just symptoms of a deeper disease, a condition diagnosed by John in verse 9, for I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. That's the problem. And it is a heart problem. Diotrephes has a heart that wants to be put first, that wants the attention, that wants to set the agenda to make the decision and to have the final word. He is proud. He, his is a kind of leadership that crushes the sheep and wrecks the church. Even if you are not in leadership, you can be like Diotrephes. You can have an attitude of rebellion over issues of preference that seep out like poison and corrupt every conversation and every ministry in the church. From the pew to the pulpit, it is all too possible for the spirit of Diotrephes to be present in our congregation. And it appears that Diotrephes made himself the sole elder of the church. I don't see John writing to anyone else or about anyone else. It appears Diotrephes has established himself. He has jockeyed for position and found himself being the only man holding the keys to the kingdom in this local church of Diotrephes. He saw himself as first and most important. About 10 years ago at Mount Vernon, we moved to a model of leadership that we believed is more biblical, a model of plural elder leadership. In other words, instead of thinking of church leadership as having a, a senior pastor above sort of a, a board of deacons, well, we sought to clarify that the congregation, well, Christ is at the very top, right? And then there's the congregation. And then under that congregation is a body of elders who are charged with shepherding and overseeing and teaching the church. A body of elders of which I am only one. This model was taught by the apostles and it spread throughout the churches, even in the days of the apostles. And this model is especially good when there are no longer apostles who can speak authoritatively and definitively for God into the midst of church affairs. You and I don't need to have a debate over whether or not Diotrephes was right. Why? Because the apostle John tells us Diotrephes was wrong, done. We don't have that. But we do have scripture. Now, that doesn't mean the fact that we have the Bible, right, doesn't mean we have no disputes. Norfolk Street Baptist, Stanton Street Baptist, they both had the Bible. By all, everything I can tell, they were Bible-believing churches. They still had disputes. They still had splits. We may disagree over how to interpret or apply some texts in the Bible. 
And I would argue this is why we need both a body of elders and a congregation seeking to understand the Bible with one mind. It's one reason why I preached such long sermons. It's not because I want to make your life difficult. Because I believe the health of our church depends upon you knowing the Bible well. And as, that has, as someone said in the past, sermonettes make Christianettes. When there are difficult decisions to be made, decisions that don't necessarily have a clear answer, all we can do is go to God in humility and prayer and ask God to use his word to give us the light that we need to make a decision. And if you are not an elder, you may not always like the decisions that the elders make. But that's not most important. What's most important is that godly elders see themselves chained to the Bible and are striving to provide guidance that does not contradict the Bible, guidance that they do not understand to be fundamentally for their good, what will make their life easier, but guidance that they believe is fundamentally good for the church as a whole. And that kind of leadership is so much better than the soul-crushing leadership wielded by Diotrephes in his sad church. Church unity will always be threatened in a fallen world, but we are protected when elders willingly submit to God's word and when we have a congregation willing to submit to God's word and where appropriate the wisdom of the elder body. That should be our instinct. It should be your instinct. You should, we should be skeptical of our own insights and eager to submit to the wisdom of an elder body if and only if that elder body is chained to the Bible. Elders are fallible, but this is a noble and beautiful instinct that produces unity. Now, where did John get this? Well, you say he's an apostle. Okay, true. But let me tell you a true story. One day, John and his brother James were walking with Jesus, and their mother was with them. Now, I really didn't think about this reality until this week. Mom was with them. Like, mom was with them. And mom wasn't just with them. Mom was talking. Mom saw Jesus. Mom loved her boys. Mom goes up to Jesus and she says, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> she asked this for her boys, James and John. Yes, John, the author of this letter. Now, sadly, the sons, the boys, did not object to Mom's request. They, called, they followed up with basically, hey, Jesus, we're ready. You know, if you want to bestow this honor of us, yeah, we're, we're ready for that. They, they wanted to be first in the kingdom. 
they hoped that Jesus would in fact put them above everyone else, they liked to be put first. Sound familiar? Now, do you know what Jesus said next? Some of the most famous words in the Bible. He said, and I quote, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20, 27 through 28. Now, so Jesus says, you want to be first? Here's the path. Calvary. You want to be first? Here's the path. Take up your cross and put everyone else in your life before you. You want to be first? Here's the way. Die. To yourself, to your desires, to your will, and put others first. And by issuing that principle, Jesus preached his own death and our gospel. John must have had those words ringing in his ears when he wrote to Gaius that Diotrephes liked to put himself first. John wrote from experience. Yes, he wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he wrote from experience. He knows what it's like. He's been there. So Jesus is saying that your voice should only be as loud as your humility is obvious. Your voice should only be as loud as your humility is obvious. Those who are last will be first. The church is not a place to demand your way, but to ask how the needs of others can be placed before yours. Diotrephes did not do this, and he divided the church. Christ did, and he made us one. And that is beautiful. Third John speaks of Christian friendship as both meaningful and long-lasting. It speaks of Christian missions as fragile and mutual. It speaks of Christian unity as threatened and beautiful. I began the sermon talking about a church whose split was so ugly it was published and became the talk of the town. May that not be us. May that never be us. And not because we're so great. And not because we're the kind of church that won't talk about anything controversial lest someone get offended. No, may we be united because we've learned in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John that a true Christian and by extension a true church is marked by the truth of Christ, right doctrine, the walk of Christ, right living, and the love of Christ, right love. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we want our church, your church, to be used to bring the gospel to the nations. We don't want to be a holy huddle, constantly looking inward, thinking about ourselves, our own divisions, uh, our own problems, or even our own successes. We want to be used by you to make the name of Christ known. But Father, we know that that will only happen if we ourselves have been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we ask you to help us know that we know Jesus. As this particular sermon series comes to an end, would you please give comfort to those who are genuinely walking with you,
but genuinely struggling with assurance of their salvation, would your Holy Spirit comfort them with the great truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And would your word challenge each of us to live more deeply and more profoundly for your glory all the days of our lives because there's no one greater than you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.